The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. Uh, you may already have, but I encourage you to stretch out your hand for a Bible. And we're opening together to Genesis chapter 16 this morning in our uh, Old Testament series, The Faith of Our Father, The Life of Abraham. We're in Genesis chapter 16. Uh, and in Genesis chapter 16, we have something of a severe family dysfunction. And uh, we can acknowledge that from the beginning that uh, all families in one way or the other have dysfunction within them, and uh, families in the Bible are no different. But the dysfunction that we find in Genesis chapter 16 deals with the struggle with patience, okay? I don't know anyone who is as patient as they ought to be, uh, or who would claim that they are a perfectly patient person all the time. Uh, A survey was done with nearly 80% of people responding Uh, that they are patient, but in reality, here is a a spectrum of decisions that we make representing our impatience. Uh, See if you would fall in these categories or not. 96% of Americans will knowingly consume extremely hot food or drink knowing that it will burn them. And 63% do so frequently, okay? So the frozen pizza right out of the oven, right? I do that all the time, (laughs) More than half of people will hang up the phone after being on hold for one minute or less, right? If you are on the phone and on hold for a minute or less, you'll hang up. 71% frequently exceed the speed limit to get to their destination faster because they are impatient, guilty. Americans binge watch an average of seven TV episodes in one single sitting. Nearly a third of respondents ages 18 to 24 wait less than one second before bypassing a slow walker on the sidewalk. Uh, Gen Y, uh, people check their phones an average of eight times when waiting to hear back from someone, uh, waiting, that were waiting for a phone call back. When waiting for a table at a restaurant, nearly a quarter of people responding to this survey, ages 18 to 24, wait less than one minute before approaching the host or hostess again after the wait period has passed. Uh, One minute. We don't like to wait, okay? And that's not just true of people ages 18 to 24. It's true of all of us. We are by nature impatient people, especially when we've been promised something and we want it and we want it now. The problem, though, that is created by our impatience is that we oftentimes make a mess of our situation because of our impatience. And Genesis chapter 16 is all about the dysfunction and mess that is created through impatience when we think that God is too slow. That God is too slow to work out His promises. Genesis 16 is all about our impatience and the mess that we create because of our impatience and the God who enters into that mess. So, before we read it, let's just remind ourselves of the context here in Genesis chapter 16. Uh, Remind yourselves that one chapter before in Genesis 15, uh, Genesis 15 was all about God going to incredible lengths to ensure Abram and Sarai about the nature of his covenant promises. Do you remember the Abrahamic covenant promises? Land, seed, blessing. And God told Abram, this will be a sure thing. And Abram struggles with that reality. But Genesis 15 was all about the assurance of his promises. Abram looked to the skies 
as surely as you cannot number the stars, so more than the number of stars will your offspring be. And Abram, as surely as I promise the punishment of the covenant upon myself, I would rather die, uh, Abram, than fail in my promises to you. That's what Genesis 15 was all about, this incredible assurance. But then chapter 16 comes and there's more waiting. Abram is waiting and waiting and waiting and time goes on and nothing changes and faith that was once full of assurance is now experiencing a a fainting fit. What we've been seeing in chapters 12 now into 16 is Abram, who is supposed to be for us a model of faithfulness, experiencing the ups and downs and the peaks and valleys, the fits and starts of faith, right? And it is an absolute roller coaster. Sometimes he's all the way up and he's assured and he's strong and then he comes all the way down and he blows it. And then he comes back up and God assures him and strengthens him. And now in chapter 16, he'll go back down. It's like a roller coaster and it's exhausting. And the reason why it's exhausting is because you and I can so easily identify with that reality. That sometimes our faith is vibrant and strong and it feels like we can face anything and then there are times when you couldn't be lower you feel like God's forsaken you and forgotten about you and then maybe you rebound out of that valley and come back up to a peak but it is a up and down reality such is the nature of the Christian life and that is the nature of faith itself and Abraham shows that to us sometimes faith faints and struggles and fails and so we can identify with that quite well We want to see that here in Genesis chapter 16. Not only the mess, but the God who enters into the mess of our sin. Let us pray and hear God's word this morning. Father, we thank you for the Bible. Thank you for the scriptures. We believe, Lord, that here you speak to us in powerful ways. That as your Holy Spirit so moved Moses to record these words for us, fully inspired that that same Spirit would now come and rest upon our hearts, illuminate our minds to receive your word with faith, with trust, and with truth that will transform our lives. Lord, we pray that you would do this and abundantly more in the power of Jesus' name. Amen. Now hear God's word. From Genesis chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So, after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. 
But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from, and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Beer Lahiroi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever. And so may he write its eternal truth upon our hearts, uh, even here and now in Genesis 16, as we find this mess that Abram finds himself in. And we want to see uh, multiple things here, and you have an outline there in your bulletin. Uh, In the midst of faith's fainting fits, we see in verse 1 to 3, the struggle of our waiting. Verses 4 to 6, the mess of our sin. And verses 7 through 16, the grace of our God. And so we want to acknowledge that this is a narrative uh, that is uh, difficult It is a narrative that confronts us with a lot of cultural realities that are extraordinarily offensive to our senses, and we have to wade our way into this mess that Abram finds himself in. But first, let's let's understand the struggle a bit, the struggle of our waiting in verses 1 to 3. Uh, Moses is recording this text for us, and we find Abram with this wearing problem that he is 75 years old when Abram first left Haran back in uh, Genesis chapter 12. He was 75 years old then, and chapter 16 begins 10 years after that, and there is still no child, and yet uh, God has promised to Abram that that three-dimensioned promise, land, seed, and blessing, but that second promise, there's no children, there's no seed, there's no posterity, there's still no child. And even after Genesis chapter 15, with this incredible assurance again in chapter 15, verses 4 to 5, Abram, look up at the night skies, and so shall your offspring be. You can imagine perhaps that Abram was thinking, you know, this is sure to happen at any moment. God is surely going to deliver on his promises, but then Days become weeks and weeks become months and maybe months become years and there's still no child and there's still waiting and there is the struggle in the waiting and there is sorrow in the waiting as well. So we find that Sarai judges that 
that God's promises are too slow to come and Sarai needs to help God out. Sarai needs to help God accomplish his purposes, that God needs human intervention, so Sarai decides to help God. And the narrative is very clear. Sarai says to Abram in verse 2, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children and puts forward her servant Hagar as a surrogate. Now, there's a, many things that we could and should say about what's happening here. For everything we could say about this, we can at least say at the beginning that, positively speaking, uh, Sarai cares about the fulfillment of God's promises. She is invested in the fulfillment of what God has said. And so for all the strange and, don't mistake it, immoral things that Sarai does here, she has sufficient interest in God's promises to the degree that she wants to see children come about. She wants to see God's promises of posterity seed to come about. She is committed to seeing this. But she is seemingly so convinced that if there's going to be seed, if there's going to be posterity, it must come by some other way. It would be Abram's, but not necessarily with her. And you may be interested to know uh, that uh, Abram, of course, is existing here in the region of the world in Canaan. And we, we geographically call this region the ancient Near East, and it is the, the setting of the geography of the Bible. But there were plenty of other cultures that existed in this world, and there are many ancient Near East cultures that produced morality codes that we actually have and can access to know that what Sarai does here is not novel, but was actually a traditional practice among these foreign cultures. That if within two years a wife could not provide a child to her husband, it was legal and not considered immoral in those cultures to purchase a slave, use the slave as the surrogate, and then after the child is uh, conceived and born to send the slave away without punishment. Now, we in the West and we in an intellectualized modern society look on this with disdain, and rightfully so. It's no doubt immoral, and it is hard for us, I think, not to focus on the immorality of all of this, but just suffice it to say that, yes, what you see in Genesis 16, yes, this is sinful. The Bible reports this, but it does not condone it. The Bible reports but does not condone this behavior. But I, I say that because the, the, the immorality of the transactional nature of the surrogate mother is not really the focus of this first section. The point here, the point of the narrative focuses on the question, how long should Sarai and Abram have waited? I mean, that's really the issue here. How long should faith wait before it decides to put fate in its own hands? How long should faith wait before it acts? Well, I've waited a long time. How much longer do I have to wait? That is the real true tension that runs through the first part of Genesis 16. How long should faith wait? Imagine that you've been in a scenario or two in which you've had to wait. You had to wait on something, regardless of what it was. 
How long should faith wait before it takes matters into its own hands? It seems like that for all of Sarai's immoral decisions, the narrative focuses itself actually with some degree of sorrowful compassion on the scenario that Abram and Sarai are in. Sorrowful compassion. I wonder if you can see that as well. The narrative focuses on the fainting faith of Abram and Sarai because, look at verse 1 and verse 3, two times we're reminded, as if we didn't already know, that Sarai is Abram's wife. In verse 1, now Sarai, Abram's wife. Uh, Verse 3, so after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife. Why the repetition of the detail? You already know that from earlier chapters. There's also, in then verse 3, the reminder that there's been this long wait, that, that decade-long wait. They've been in Canaan for 10 years and still no uh, fulfillment of the promise in verse 3. And then there's this additional emphasis in verse 3 that when Sarai hands her servant Hagar to Abram, there's this extra emphasis that's there as well in verse 3. So after Abram had lived in the land 10 years, in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian her servant and gave her to Abram, her husband. Did, did you want to say, I mean, I, I already know that they have this relationship. We already know this, but I, I think it's clear that Moses is here making a point. Moses writes Genesis under divine inspiration. Moses is here making a point about the very sad state of affairs that exists here within the context of their marriage covenant. It was them who were husband and wife, and this decision is made that breaks the bonds of that marriage covenant, and it is reported with almost this pleading, compassionate, why did you do this? They give in, though. And it's reported in this way that, you know, spares condemnation. It doesn't just say what a wretched thing that was to do, and it was. But it doesn't lay that to Abram and Sarah's feet right away as if to almost say to us that that God has compassion, perhaps, for the struggles of our faith. That there is sympathy for Abram and Sarai recognizing that they were put in a scenario that drained their faith dry and caused it to faint. And I think we should see that because otherwise we will read Genesis 16 with this moral superiority that says, oh, they shouldn't have done that instead of realizing that we oftentimes experience Situations in which we make immoral, ungodly, and sinful decisions because our faith is also fainting. And I think this is important to see because when your faith and my faith struggles and fails and faints, it is evidence that we are merely human. And that the people in the Bible are not superheroes, they are just like us. And so rather than read Genesis 16 with some kind of moral superiority over the text, we should rather identify with the utter humanity 
of struggling faith that we can identify with, that we face similar struggles of waiting. And again, I don't know what yours is. But it may be any number of things. In fact, a lot of things are actually common among us. It may be for you that you have an incredible heavy burden for your adult children or grandchildren who have walked away from their covenant with God. And you're wondering, when will they come back, if ever? And you wait, and you wait, and you wait on this. And you're tempted to force God's hand and berate them with the faith as if that will draw them. But you're struggling in the waiting. Maybe it's a a physical condition that you're struggling with, and you seem to have it for a very, very long time. And you're wondering, when will this affliction be lifted? Whatever situation weighs you down or bears a burden on you, maybe... Uh, you know, young people, I think, especially deal with the pressures of all of this when uh, they, they, they want to be joined together with someone in such a degree, with such a rush, that they make bad decisions to rush God's hand, saying, where's my future spouse? And they make all sorts of poor decisions because they want to take things into their hands instead of waiting and trusting God to bring to them the person they have for them, if indeed it's God's will that they should be together. But in every situation, regardless of the circumstances, we are faithful with waiting and the struggle of the waiting that wears down our faith where we are tempted to take things into our hand and manipulate God's purposes. This is the pressures that God's people face. The choices are not endorsed, but they are empathized with in Genesis 16. So that is the struggle of of waiting. But you can't cover up what happens here. So in verses Four to six, we see the mess, the mess of our sin, the mess of their sin. Again, there's no hiding behind this. A child has been conceived outside of the marriage covenant, and it's clear then rather than having joy at the seemingly successful plan, what was intended to solve everything does nothing but create more problems in verse four. Hagar conceives But when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. That Sarai's plan backfires on her and now there's tension in her household. And whose fault is it? Abram's. Verse 5. Sarai said to Abram, This is all your fault. May the wrong done to me be on you. Uh, When Sarai uses the word wrong here, it is a emphatic judicial term you have wronged me it is a hebrew word that you'll recognize from news media abram you have wronged me abram you have hamased me hamas do you remember that terminology violence is what that word means wrong outrage moral impugnance in the face of violence hamas Abram, you have wronged me. Sarai blames Abram. And Abram turns around and tells Sarai to do whatever you want about it. Do as you please. So Sarai treats Hagar so severely that Hagar runs away in verse 6. Now, that is drastic dysfunction, isn't it? Drastic dysfunction inside Abram's household. But it seems to be really the point of emphasis that it is not just the dynamic of dysfunction within this family, 
but within another family, a larger family, and a broader family. Look again at the details in verses 2 and 3 and see if you can find the echo of another story in Genesis 16. Look at the text. Look at verse 2. In verse 2 it says that Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. And in verse 3, Sarai took Hagar and gave her to Abram. Do you see the echo of an older story in Genesis 16? That Adam, compelled by the thinking of Eve took the fruit who then gave to Adam that just as in Genesis, Sarai has decided along with Eve that God's purposes are not good, that they should not wait, that they should not be obeyed, that what God has said is not enough and we must grasp for something else that God has specifically restricted. Discontentment with what God has said. It affected Adam and Eve in the garden. It affects everyone after that, including Abram and Sarai, and every single person in this room, and every single person on this earth. What is the problem? That humanity is fallen. That we are sinners, and that this condition affects us. Listen, it's there on your outline. It's one of the prayers from the Puritan prayer book, The Valley of Vision, called self-deprecation. The awareness of my sin. Listen to these words. O Lord, my every sense, member, faculty, affection is a snare to me. I can scarce open my eyes, but I envy those above me or despise those below. I covet honor and riches of the mighty, and I am proud and unmerciful to the rags of others. Am I gifted? I lust after applause. Am I unlearned? How I despise what I have not. Am I inferior? How much I grudge others' preeminence. Thou knowest that all these are snares by my corruptions and that my greatest snare is myself. Isn't that something that your biggest problem your biggest problem is not outside of you, but rather what? Within. Jesus says, it is not what goes into a man that makes him unclean, but rather that which comes out. In such a way that uh, one of the famous authors in the 19th century, G.K. Chesterton, uh, uh, an advertisement was placed in the newspaper. What's wrong with the world? Respond with your commentary and your opinion on what's wrong with the world. And people were writing in all kinds of reasons and answers. And if you wanted to answer the question, what's wrong with the world, maybe you could come up with a list of things or people or ideas or methodologies. And G.K. Chesterton responded to the question, what's wrong with the world? Dear sir, I am. Signed, G.K. Chesterton. What's wrong with the world? Genesis 16 reveals this. But you know what? The gospel reveals this to us as well. The gospel makes us aware of this, which is why, actually, Jim so eloquently reminded us that confession is such an important part of the rhythm of the Christian life. 
That Genesis 16 is not just some ridiculous dysfunction. It is within the realm of real life in a real fallen world among lives of real fallen men and women. But thankfully, where sin abounds, what? Grace abounds all the more. That's not where this story ends. So where we've seen the mess of our sin, now we want to see the grace, the grace of our God in the rest of the chapter. Now, Hagar runs runs from Sarai, and four times in verses 7 through 11, the text mentions this term that is so far new to the book of Genesis, but will be important throughout the rest of the Bible. In verses 7 through 11, four different times, the text mentions the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord. And when you, when you think of that, you might think of you know, angels, but that is actually not the intention of the text because verse 13 seems to suggest that this is actually the Lord himself in visible form. Not an angel, but the angel of the Lord, the Lord himself, all capital letters, Lord, meaning Yahweh, God himself. This is not just an angel. This is not, you know, Michael or Gabriel that we read about later in the New Testament. This is the angel of the Lord. What we call this is a very unique feature, especially in the Old Testament. We call this the pre-incarnate Christ. What does it mean that God himself is seen in physical form? Who is that but the Lord Jesus? When the Old Testament speaks of the angel of the Lord, it is a pre-incarnate Christ. And here we find Hagar being spoken to not by an angel, but by the Lord himself. That God himself finds Hagar by the spring on the road to shore, which indicates that she was going back to Egypt, back to the land of paganism, back to the land of uh, foreign faith, away from the land of the covenant. And God goes after Hagar. God himself. And we see four things here. We see his, his mercy, his direction, his comfort, and his wonder. And very quickly, we'll just point out these details. First of all, his mercy, that the angel of the Lord goes after Hagar and finds her and calls her by name. Now, biblical scholars indicate that this is the only time in the Bible that God addresses a woman by name. Now, when I first read that, I thought, that's not true. I mean, Mary is called upon, but Mary is being spoken to by an angel, not God himself. That this is the only time God appears in this way to speak. In other times, he's always speaking to Moses, or he's speaking to Abram, or he's speaking to David by way of a prophet. But here, the only time God himself speaks directly as a deity to a woman is to Hagar, who is an Egyptian slave woman. This is the only instance of this. That God finds her and knows her and cares about her. 
that where others thought that she was one who could be cast away, in God's sight, she is one of value, that God demonstrates his mercy and compassion to find her and knows her and cares for her. So his mercy is seen in this, but also his direction. And this is something that you will likely stumble over, and I think a lot of people do oftentimes. Look at also his direction to her. He says in verse 9, return. Return and submit to her. And you think to yourself, is this some kind of injustice here on God's behalf? Why would he counsel her to do that? She's been unjustly treated and now he wants her to go back. And the the only thing that I can get inside of in way of explanation to make sense of this, I think, is that oftentimes... Uh, maybe some of you remember this. Maybe, maybe you were raised with a way where you were told when you came to mom or dad, when you had something hard, and they said to you, what? Oh, you should just quit. Forget about it. No, they said what? Stick it out. And you can go back. Stick it out. Don't, don't quit. Stick it out. And... People oftentimes bemoan the fact that this sentiment is lost in a generation today, but that's not the point of the text by any means whatsoever. But here God is calling on Hagar to go back to her estate rather than rebel from it and submit to it. And we are a people who hate that concept. Go back and submit. But God, in his direction, is telling Hagar, don't go back to the land of Egypt where you will never hear my name again. But go back to the promised land where you will go into the household of the covenant and hear of my name and hear of my grace. This is not God's injustice to Hagar. This is God's direction to Hagar telling her that it is better to dwell within the house of faith than in the house of wickedness in Egypt. The grace of his direction, but also the grace of his comfort. Verse 11, verse 11, Hagar's told that she will have a son and the son is going to be named Ishmael, which means literally God hears. That's what the name Ishmael means. God hears that God has listened to your affliction, that he cares for you. And every time you think of your son and call him by name, you will remember that God is a God who hears who cares, but also, finally, the grace of his wonder. Notice how Hagar responds to all of this. Hagar does not turn to the angel of the Lord and say, no, I've had it with you and your people. I don't want anything to do with this. I am done and over all of it. No, she is caught up in wonder at who God is in verse 13. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, saying, verse 13, you are a God of seeing. You are a God of seeing. And that's a Hebrew phrase that's actually very difficult to translate. It could mean one of two things. When Hagar says you are a God of seeing, it could mean you are a God that I have been able to see. You are a God who makes himself visible to me so that I can apprehend with knowledge that you are real. You are a God of seeing, meaning I see you. Or it could also mean you are a God who sees me. But actually, you don't have to decide between the two because both of them are a reality. You are a God that I have been able to see, and you are a God who sees me. What is this but the sense of what Psalm 139 tells us? 
Psalm 139, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down, and you are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. The grace of the God who sees and knows and displays the wonder of who he is to Hagar. The Lord comes to Hagar. He comes after her and finds her and sees her and knows her that she was not wandering outside of his sight. And here's the point. That it is into our arrogance and our struggles and our sins that God comes and sees and knows. In the struggle of our sin, because of our impatience and our unfaithfulness, God comes and sees and knows. The point of Genesis 16 is that things are not utterly hopeless so long as we have this God as our God. Things are not utterly hopeless. And it is a picture, of course, of Jesus Christ who comes to the stranger who comes to the sinner, who comes to the outcasts, and rather than let them wander away outside of the camp, he comes and says, no, I have seen you, and I know you, and I do not want you to wander from me. Here, Genesis 16 calls us, as the gospel calls us, to know ourselves as sinners, to be without a doubt that we are guilty along with Abram and Sarai and Hagar of unrighteousness. And yet, to believe that Christ knows us as sinners and yet lays down his life for us anyway. Rather than expecting we have everything figured out or have all of the mess cleaned up or be perfect people in and of ourselves, we must know ourselves as sinners, but we must also know Christ as the Savior of sinners and remember this core truth of the gospel that there is more mercy in Jesus Christ than there is sin in you. Genesis 16 is our story then actually. And if we have eyes to see and ears to hear, we see how it also shows us the gospel. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the scriptures. We thank you even for challenging scriptures that confound our senses, that push us and stretch us in our understanding. But we pray, Lord, that on every page of the Bible, we would see the wonderful truth of the God who rescues sinners, sinners who are helpless in and of themselves, the grace of the gospel that we cling to in Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us today to take your word and store it deeply within our hearts that we might know ourselves, but with even clearer sense that we might know you as our God. And so, Lord, help us, we pray, in the power of Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.